Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with the University of Illinois Extension in Macomb, Illinois. And on today's podcast, we are just just us, the hosts here today. So I am joined by our intrepid uh, educators here. We have Katie Parker in Quincy, Illinois, our local foods educator. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, Chris. And then we have Ken in Jacksonville, Illinois, horticulture educator, also with U of I Extension. Hello, Ken. Good morning. And today we want to share with folks some of the things that are going on in our yards. We are getting towards the end of May here in 2020, and lots of things have happened. We've had lots of rain. In fact, I am just now seeing a peak of sun from the clouds, and I feel like it has been forever since I have seen the sun. So I I want to check in first with Ken. Ken, what's going on in your yard? We were chatting before. You're growing some interesting plants this year. Yes, every year, um, at least in our garden, we try to grow a couple new plants. And this year, um, our kids picked peanuts and cotton, so I just got done uh, transplanting some of our peanuts and some of our cotton. So um, our, our peanuts, so we started this stuff um, back in March. So these are you know, pretty good-sized plants because these have long, uh, long requirement for growing and stuff. So if we were just to direct seed them, we wouldn't have enough time to actually for those plants to mature. So we started them inside. Um, because of all the rain and stuff, I'm just now getting around and all the cold weather we've had, I'm just now getting around to putting them outside. Um, we've got peanuts in our, our raised beds and some of uh, those fabric grow pots because they like a little drier soil. So hopefully um, that'll he- help keep them from getting too um, wet and stuff. So I think some of our peanuts are starting to bloom. So hopefully we'll end up with some peanuts sometime this fall. And then cotton, we'll see. We'll, we'll see what happens with that. Well, that just sounds like two fun plants for kids now i'm not telling my kids about that because they're going to want to do the same thing and <laughs> i don't have anywhere to put those <laughs> i don't have where anywhere to do cotton or uh peanuts but can could you describe so when you're growing peanuts what exactly you mentioned flowering what, what happens here how do we actually get the peanuts does it just come from the root system how do they develop Yep. So the, the flowers actually bloom above ground. So the peanuts, I have, and I think most peanuts are going to be yellow flowers. So they'll, they'll bloom above ground, and then after they're done blooming, they'll actually go start to bend down and actually grow down into the soil. So those peanuts are actually developing um, underground. It's not actually on the roots, but it's actually, you know, from that flower stalk going down into the ground. Um, and you would just typically commercially when they do it, they'll go into a field, they'll flip all those plants upside down, let those plants dry for a little bit, and they'll come through uh, and harvest those. Very cool. And, and also, we um, celebrated, I think it was World Bee Day last week. And um, so I'm just curious, can you see any plants in your yard that have been pretty attractive to bees or maybe any type of pollinators this last couple of day- weeks? Chips, so I actually took few days off and was taking pictures so um, all our strawberry patch that we have um, is is loaded with bees and and surfeit flies not that those are bees but um, so those have a lot of them our chives are blooming those have had quite a few bees on them our our creeping charlie that's everywhere it's got bees and some of our other um, some of the other ornamental plants flowers we've got planted um, 
I've lost the tags. I don't know what they are anymore, but they've had some stuff on there too. So, and we've got more and more stuff. Um, so all of our iris are starting to bloom. Um, some of our, our Baptisia, false indigo, um, that should be opening up soon. Uh, we have both a yellow um, and purple uh, flowered uh, varieties. So um, columbines blooming. I haven't seen any pollinators on that, but I haven't really looked all that closely. I'm assuming there's probably going to be some stuff on there, but things are definitely starting to, to color up here now that we're hopefully starting to get warm and start getting some, some sun here. And Katie, so over in Quincy, uh, just that would be west of where Ken is located, and you're like in the heart of the Mississippi River Valley, so you got some humidity that usually comes, uh, especially with spring and summer. Um, you know, what kind of growing conditions are you seeing there? Yeah, so it seems like a lot of things have really started sprouting up, even though it's been a little cooler and less sunny. Um, but we're really seeing things pop out of the ground and a lot of things starting to bloom. Um, so we're seeing a lot of similar things that Ken mentioned, the irises, columbines. Um, one of my favorites is the lupin um, as that's starting to, to bloom. Um, and so that's always fun to see. We also have a lot of col or, sorry, coral bells uh, starting to bloom. And it looks like in uh, maybe a couple of days, our poppy will open up. Um, so that's always exciting to see. Well, that sounds great. And so do you have a vegetable garden, Katie? Is, uh, you know, uh, growing any plants outside in that? Oh, yeah. Um, so, so far, I've planted a lot of um, our squashes. They haven't germinated yet. Uh, as we got a hard rain after I planted those, um, and so I've seen some soil crusting going on. I've tried to break that up as best as possible, um, but I still don't see anything. So I actually started some plants in pots inside just in case those don't germinate. Um, I've had some green beans start to pop up. Um, I planted some tomatoes that I had started inside. Uh, and the rabbits have been enjoying those, so I had to put up some chicken wire around those to protect them. Um, and then my spinach is doing pretty well, spinach and cabbage. Yeah, my cool season stuff has really enjoyed this weather. The tomatoes and peppers are just sitting there, but the lettuces, the spinach, uh, that is just looking beautiful right now. And actually, we're going to have salad later on today from some of the things that we planted out in the garden already. That's awesome. Did you direct seed your cool seasons or did you transplant those? So we have a couple different lettuces. We have some head lettuces that were transplanted from starting inside, outside. But then also I have some mixed greens. It's just basically, you know, fine seeded mixture of different types of greens. I think there's some like kale, bok choy, uh, different types of red and green leaf lettuces there's there's a lot of things that and those were direct seeded into containers on our deck and so we're gonna probably have a nice mixed green salad maybe have some turkey sandwiches with some with some uh, lettuce on it so i am super excited for lunch today because we actually haven't had fresh lettuce or greens from the garden for months so i'm i'm really really hoping everything tastes great today Oh, yeah, that sounds exciting. Should be a good lunch. Yeah, hopefully. It it kind of brings back, uh, you know, childhood memories of uh, 
picking things out of the garden, putting them on a sandwich or, you know, just eating them fresh right right out off the plant. Mm-hmm. So Macomb, not too much different than what Ken and Katie are seeing either. It's just been, it's been rainy in terms of like a few days ago, but then it's just been cool and cloudy. And so nothing's really dried out. Um, so more than likely, you know, we outside my window, I am seeing some foliar disease issues pop up on some shade trees. I know sycamores, uh, probably some ash, oak. You might be seeing types of anthracnose pop up. So I am expecting those questions to be coming into the extension office here any day now as, as folks start noticing that occurring on their shade trees. But but otherwise, yeah, you know, I have Columbine. I'm looking at it right now out the window. We've had hummingbirds visiting our Columbine now for at least, I would say, two weeks, um, and which, you know, that's probably one of the first ones to migrate into the area. So pretty happy to see that. But for the most part, you know, we're just kind of waiting to dry out, you know, get the lawn mowed and, uh, you know, get some more plants in the ground and start working on the weed control in the garden. Yeah, we definitely have weeds popping up all over the place. It's going to be it's going to be our weekend activity is nonstop weeding. Ours too. I I told my family is like all hands on deck for weed control. That's what it takes. Oh yeah, and I don't know quite what to do in terms of some of the larger areas that we still have we haven't planted everything yet you know we've kind of reserved some space for some squash uh you know and we even have a spot you know my kids want to do a pumpkin this year so we're kind of just holding that area but right now the weeds are just really starting to take over right there so more mulch i suppose what do you guys like to use for your mulch do you just use grass clippings or straw so we, we've got a bunch of trees in our yard, so we rake up the leaves, and we've got a chipper shredder, so we shred all those and, and bag them, store them in the garage over the winter, and then I'll put those in the vegetable garden. Um, and then for our ornamental beds, we've been getting, we've gotten a few truckloads of um, um, wood chips from an arborist that we've been using. And at my old house, we had, um, our neighbors had lots of trees, and they never wanted the fall leaves, so we would mow them, bag them, shred them, and we would use that as mulch in our ornamental beds. Uh, my yard was so small, we, we had uh, just container veggies at that point. But growing up, we always used shredded leaves and wood chips as a, a mulch. And with a lot of our volunteer gardens that we manage right now with the extension, it's uh, a lot of straw that we're putting down. Do you have a favorite or in mind, Katie, something that you, you use at home or, or for work? Um, so we've never actually mulched the garden before. Um, so that's something I'm looking at this year just to help manage the weeds because uh, they can become a lot of work. Um, so I'm thinking uh, probably some grass clippings, but I need to find um, – we do spray our yard, um, so I definitely need to find an area that hasn't been sprayed. Uh, if that doesn't work, then I'll probably use straw. Yeah, that's I, we see that question come in, too. It's like, my tomato leaves are all curled. All I've done is I've mulched with my lawn clippings. What's going on? It's like, hmm, do you do any type of broadleaf herbicide on your lawn? And if the answer is yes, we're like, 
Yeah, don't 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 use those grass clippings. There's your problem. Yep. Yep. Got to be and, mindful of that. And then depending on how many weeds you have in your yard, if, if those are going to seed and you're cutting your grass to put those clippings down, that can cause some problems too. But if you're spraying, hopefully you don't have too many weed problems then. Well, speaking of those common questions that tend to come into the extension office, we still have questions that come in. It uh, doesn't matter the, the time, the day, or you know where we're at. Um, we have questions coming into the office, and so um, I've gotten a couple of these, actually, and I'm, I, you know, I want to check in with Ken here. I've answered a few already. Make sure that I'm doing this all right. But So Cynthia from McDonough County, she has a large cluster of bees that are just like this mass of uh, buzzing insects in her tree. She wants to know what to do about this. Does she call someone? Does she spray them? Are they going to hurt her? What's going on with this situation? So it sounds like she has got a, a swarm. So when honeybee colonies get kind of too big for where they're at, they will they'll split their colony. They'll create a new queen. Um, the old queen and stuff, they will take some of the half the workers and they'll go out they'll swarm. Uh, and start a new colony. Um, this is actually that that large swarm. That's they're pretty docile. They don't have a home to protect, so they're not really all that aggressive. Um, <clears throat> shouldn't don't really need to worry about it. They're usually only there for a day or two. Um, if you know any beekeepers, um, a lot of beekeepers will go out and collect those. Most of the time, they'll do it for free, especially if it's somewhere easy to access. Um, so if you've got um, a local beekeeping group, you could try contacting them. Um, the Illinois State Beekeeping Association, I believe, has a list of people um, or may be able to get you into contact with somebody local um, that may be able to come out um, and collect that hive or that uh, swarm. And if they, if you can't find anybody, they should be gone um, within a day or two. So it really shouldn't be something uh, you need to worry about. Just kind of enjoy it, watch them, and they'll be gone um, pretty soon. Yeah, they're it is pretty cool to see, though. Um, you know, just be respectful, give them their distance. But um, the, each client has has emailed me pictures, and it's just like, oh wow, that's just so neat. And then they've also followed up and confirmed that this, neither of the swarms established, and the bees are are gone. Yep. So yeah, that that swarm they'll send out scouts um, around the area, try to find you know suitable um, suitable area to create that hive build that nest out and once they find that um, everybody will fly into there and they'll be gone excellent well thank you very much Ken our next question comes from Paul Paul's in Cook County uh, and Paul has done a soil test and he got his results back and it shows that he has excess phosphorus and he's uh, gave a little bit of background here it says he's been adding composted manure every year for years and years so he wants to know what what should he do about all of this uh, excess phosphorus that he's seeing on his soil test results. So, what do you think, Katie? So, right off the bat, I would suggest that he stops applying the manure to his um, area where the soil test was taken. Um, when looking at your soil test, I would also look at your soil pH, as well as uh, probably your your potassium levels. So it's important to be mindful of what you're planting and what the nutrient needs are for those plants, as well as the pH level. Um, so if you're planting something that needs more potassium, uh, but your potassium levels are low and your 
phosphorus levels are high, it might be something where you can supplement just like a, a potash, um, which just provides you with potassium. Or if you have nitrogen-loving plants, it might be something where you're applying uh, just a nitrogen fertilizer rather than um, something like 10-10-10 fertilizer. Um, it's also important to look at your pH because uh, if your pH is high and you have excess phosphorus levels, that can inhibit other nutrients in the soil. Um, so you might see some deficiencies of those nutrients due to a high pH level in the phosphorus. Yeah, it seems like over years and years of folks adding like a, a balanced fertilizer, as you call it, like a 10-10-10, and not doing soil testing to see if any of that is, is necessary, um, it, it is becoming more commonly seen that some of these phosphorus levels from soil tests are, um, you know, excessively high or higher than, you know, would be typically found in an Illinois soil. We also typically see a lot of phosphorus in manure, and so uh, making those applications year after year, you can kind of expect to see a buildup of phosphorus, but again, it's dependent a lot of times on the manure type. All right, thank you very much, Katie. And and so now, Ken, going back to you, uh, we got another, another B question. Uh, this comes from Ann and Jim. Uh, they're in Sangamon County. Uh, they want to know about carpenter bees nesting in the house. What should they do about these kind of unwelcome kind of live-ins that they have? Right. So, so carpenter bees, you know, these are one of our, our native bee species. Um, a lot of times they may get confused uh, with bumblebees, but they're going to be uh, larger than bumblebees, and they're not going to be quite as... Um, as hairy as bumblebees, like the abdomen isn't as hairy, and they usually have a, a bald patch um, kind of behind the head on that thorax area. Um, and they uh, are bees that are going to nest in wood. Uh, so a lot of times you'll find them in the house, um, maybe uh, in siding, um, in a garage, and rafters, um, stuff like that. So a lot of times you, you would want to try to avoid killing bees, but in this case, you know, tumbling into your house, you probably don't want that. They can cause um, some damage. Um, so with this, you would want to apply um, a pesticide to the exterior of that hole. Um, when that bee goes in and out, they'll pick that the pesticide up. A lot of times you're going to be using a dust or something like that. You can also use liquids, though. Um, they'll pick up that pesticide, and as they're, they're grooming themselves, cleaning themselves, they'll ingest that pesticide. Um, and that, that will kill them then. Um, <clears throat> and then you can wait probably until the fall, and then you can seal that hole up just to make sure there's, there's nothing else in there. Um, the best way to try to prevent them from building a nest in your house or, or any other kind of wood, your deck, what have you, um, is to paint that surface or varnish it. Um, they don't like those painted or varnished surfaces, so typically they'll leave that alone. Um, so it's probably the easiest way to try to kind of avoid these problems in the first place. If you've got, you know, an old um, a tree that's dead, you kind of leave that stump behind, leave that snag behind, and they'll, they'll nest in that. Um, so there's ways you can kind of provide alternative uh, nesting areas for those. I, I love carpenter bees. I grew up with them uh, as a child. My parents had uh, wood siding on their home and wood decks, and they would burrow in those. And the males, they just love to get in your face. But the you know early on, I learned they're not going to actually hurt you. So it's pretty fun to just sort of walk in, and there's these giant bees bouncing off of your forehead. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So yeah, it's a lot of times it's easier said than done not to get worried when you get this bee up in your face, man. A lot of the male bees, your carpenter bees, your 
your cicada killer wasp, the males do the same thing. They'll get up in your face and try to scare you off. But, yeah, don't have to worry about them, but easier said than done sometimes. Right. Yep. And that alternate that alternative habitat, I, I think it's that's pretty important to provide. Uh, parents said the same thing. They left a couple dead tree snags. Uh, they, they did. Uh, I think they stained the deck. Uh, and they did paint the siding, and that helped take care of the issue. So, well, very good. All right. Um, next, we have a question uh, for Katie, and this comes from Daryl. He's in Adams County. Um, you know, we do have this in the news quite a bit. Uh, there's been headline makers regarding growing hemp. Um, so Daryl just wants to know, is this something that he can grow in his garden? So Katie, can you clarify some of the rules here? Yeah, so uh, this has been a common question with Illinois legalizing the growth of industrial hemp. Um, but the requirement is that if you grow industrial hemp in Illinois, you do need a license and you can obtain that through the Illinois Department of Agriculture. Um, I hear it's a pretty easy process. Uh, there are fees involved. I think there's a $100 application fee as well as a registration fee for uh, depending on the number of years that you plan to grow. Um, but there are some strict uh, regulations with growing hemp. Uh, so even if you're doing it on a small scale, as, such as your backyard, you still need that license. Um, we do have a commercial educator in Illinois by the name of Philip Alberti, um, and he is specializing in the growth of, um, or on the topic of growing industrial hemp in Illinois. So if you ever have any questions, he is a good resource to utilize. And we can uh, put his information attached to the podcast. Yes, we can do that. Philip, he's been traveling the state, giving lots of uh, in-person lectures, you know, prior to uh, the stay-at-home order that we're currently under. But I'm sure once that's lifted, Philip will resume his normal circuit of traveling around the state uh, and, and giving classes about growing industrial hemp. All right, so our last question of the day, this comes from James. And James, I didn't uh, get a location from James except for that he's in Illinois. Um, and he wants to know what he can spray on his weeds growing through his patio pavers. He wants something that's safer than commercial weed killers. And so is there something that is safe that would be an alternative to commercial weed killers that he can make at home that also kills the roots. Um, so I, I, I'll just say that um, our article, so we, the Good Growing podcast also has the Good Growing blog. And uh, this week, the article that I wrote was on homemade horticulture remedies, the things that we might find on the internet or some, some kind of solution that was passed down from generation to generation about uh, that we mix at home and we spray on our garden. Now, Extension does not recommend the use of home remedy uh, pesticides. The major issue that, that comes in this is that one, the pesticides are not uh, regulated in any form or fashion. You know, the stuff that you find on the garden center shelves, they have gone through the regulatory process. They've been tested and approved by the EPA to find both the good and the detrimental effects of that product. So that's something that just doesn't happen when you're making that 
at home. And the other issue that we see time and again is folks might get that recipe incorrect. Also the idea that anyone can post stuff on the internet and they might not know at all what they're doing and so you're going to get uh, a recipe you know that could be severely more dangerous to you as a person so again that's kind of our our, our little soapbox here in terms of uh, homemade remedies so in, in that light you know we are going to steer you towards purchasing some type of a commercial product as opposed to making it yourself but um, you know so some options for weeds that grow up through the the joints and pavers you know a really popular product these days is called poly sand it's basically sand that has a polymer product mixed into it so that when it's wet down it actually binds together and creates this uh, kind of it's flexible but pretty much a, a solid surface that weeds can't make their way through now I will add um, when I was doing landscaping uh, poly sand was, was kind of a newer product on, on the market they have improved their formulation uh, recently but you do have to make sure that you read the label of that poly sand because uh, certain products if, if you don't get the the sand swept cleanly off the surface of the pavers and you wet it down it will actually leave a, a hazy look on the pavers uh, and that can be on there permanently so you want to make sure again following the label directions there for uh, doing polysand. You know, some of the other options in terms of an herbicide, I'm, I'm not really, maybe here in a second, I'll put this out to Ken and Katie, but I'm not really sure of an organic-based herbicide that affects both the top growth and the, and the root system. I do know there's more popular uh, iron-based herbicides that we typically use in lawns. However, iron herbicides, they will discolor paved surfaces so you may not want to be spraying that on a patio um, you know some of the other things might be a, a pre-emergent that you would utilize um, and for myself in my patio I actually have a flame weeder um, that I use to um, just ba it basically scorches the tops of the weeds uh, and it's just part of my routine uh, patio maintenance you know almost almost every week you go out with your little flame weeder with the little propane uh, stove, uh, a little propane tank that you would use for a camp stove, and you use that and you pull the trigger and just a, a little bright blue flame comes out and you just wave it over the leaves or the weeds just, you know, very quickly. You're just desiccating those cells, you know, destroying those cells with heat. It only kills the above ground growth. Um, so again, that's just part of my routine maintenance. If I have a dandelion that keeps coming up, I'll just keep hitting it, um, you know, and if I'm feeling you know with anxious with some energy I might try to pull it so but I don't know Ken and Katie do you know of any organic alternatives that uh, for herbicides that might target root systems of weeds I can't think of anything um, off the top of my head yeah same here yeah so that uh, James I think in terms of of what you might be looking at it's it's some probably would have to consist of routine maintenance, investigate the poly sand option, see if that would be right for you. Um, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, there are a couple of options and that would be organic. Um, if that's what you are seeking, that would kill the above ground growth. Um, you know, another option that comes to mind would be herbicidal vinegar. 
Um, but herbicidal vinegar is one of those where, uh, and I would probably lump flame weeding into that, the, the risk, the immediate risk is very high. You know, with, with flame weeding, um, you're using fire, you know, so that's, that's a big risk. Um, you know, you could hurt yourself with that with the herbicidal vinegar, um, which is vinegar that you would purchase from the store that is formulated for weed control. Uh, th that stuff is very caustic. And so if you're not wearing goggles and gloves, um, you know, you could also be injured. You could permanently injure your, your sight. And so just, just be very careful with some of these products. Just because it is marketed as natural or organic does not equate to safe. And I would add, if, if you wants to consider something that's not organic, there are herbicides that kind of have that year-long residual. Um, so you could put something like that down in the spring and you – Hopefully that would be kind of the last time you have to apply it until next year. So those, the 365 or year-round um, is usually how they're marketed. Would be another alternative, kind of a one-time thing. Yes, thank you, Ken. And that's uh, if if folks want to. Actually, our last podcast we talked with Michelle Wiesbrock. She's our weed specialist. She goes into all these different uh, kind of sterilants that you can spray uh, once and just kind of leave it alone for the rest of the year. And we can, uh, you can check that out on the, on the Good Growing Podcast playlist. Katie and Ken, thank you very much for being here, sharing your knowledge with us. And I ho hopefully we get outside coming up once the sun comes out and things dry off a little. Yeah, don't forget to put that sunscreen on. <laughs> I've already got my first sunburn of the year, so I might be good, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, we do appreciate you listening. And as always, keep on growing.